and welcome back to the Move Against Cancer podcast. I'm Lucy Gossage, an oncologist and a lover of outdoor adventures. And this is a podcast brought to you by Move Charity. So this week, I'm really looking forward to chatting to Erin Kennedy. Erin is a full-time coxswain for the GB Rowing Squad, and she's got numerous accolades to her name, not least Tokyo 2020 Paralympic champion, two times world champion and European champion. But in May this year, Erin was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was just 29. The day after her diagnosis, Erin got on a plane, joined her team and got back in the boat to claim her first ever World Cup gold medal. She then flew back home, started chemotherapy and a few months later, in the middle of her chemotherapy, Erin and her team won the European Championships. Erin's now taking a, step, a temporary step back from rowing while she continues her treatment, but she's determined that she'll get back to the job she loves in 2023. But in the meantime, as well as getting through the mundanity of chemotherapy, she's doing absolutely everything she can to be as open as possible about her treatment, to highlight the importance of early detection and raise awareness of breast cancer in younger women. From following Erin over the last few months, I have a feeling we've got a lot in common and I really can't wait to chat to her. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Erin. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. Um, it's really great to have the opportunity to chat with you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing really well, thank you. And I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're too, too kind. Um, so I want to start by talking about coxing because I did a little bit of rowing at university um, and like you I'm quite short and quite little and probably quite gobby and everyone kept saying to me oh you should try coxing and I just I just thought you know it'd be my worst nightmare sitting there in the cold <laughs> tell me about coxing <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's normally like the first elephant in the room they're like um great what is it you do uh, um <laughs> um so yeah normally the first thing is telling people you don't have a drum because a lot of people get you know think about dragon boating and things like that um so uh yeah so I'm I'm a cox so I similar to you I started rowing at university and actually went down to the boat club I'm you know five foot two um and uh fresh as week and they sort of took a look at me and thought oh hang on why, why don't you think about this role um <laughs> and I'd, I'd sort of watched a boat race and so I knew they got thrown in at the end but I didn't really know exactly what it was um but I sort of just fell in love with it really because I'd, I've always been really unbelievably competitive from you know board games to netball um master of none probably in terms <laughs> of sports like I like dabbling in lots of different things but you know I was never sort of um uh and professional anything really um and yeah I just found this sort of uh, team where you know you are so fundamentally you know the the brains of the team the strategist the you're sort of the psychologist the communicator um you have a fundamental role as well so you're literally steering so you're in charge of the boat you're the only one who can actually see where it's going but it's so much more than that it's um it's somewhere between I normally say kind of a jockey um because you know I am getting a free ride um, <laughs> um you can't get away from that but then you're sort of like a quarterback of American football very much reading the plays looking at strategy and then sort of race desk engineer in F1 where you're getting a lot of data and you need to process it communicate it and deliver it to athletes that will try and make the boat go faster um sort of all whilst having a laugh and you know um hopefully you know being in Henley and on a nice summer's day rowing along with eight of your mates 
So that's the thing. On a nice summer day, I can imagine it's absolutely glorious. When it's six o'clock in the morning on a December morning and you're dragging yourself out to sit in the cold, <laughs> what makes you get out of bed to do that? Um, I think I think rowing is a real um there's a really, really obvious um correlation between the more you do it and the better you are. Um you can't escape it and there are there are lots of different sports you know where oh okay we can spend a little bit more finesse here or a little bit more flexibility here a little bit whatever fundamentally kind of the more rowing strokes you take generally the better the rowing strokes will be um and so there's there's a love of like the grind and the graft I think um when you get to kind of full-time level that you just have to love the training to be honest and you have to love the kind of incremental changes that you can make over you know, we're talking 12 to 20 kilometer sessions kind of, well, that's per day. And we'll maybe do two, two to three of them a day. Um, so you're really sort of clocking up the miles and you've got to, you've got to love, you've got to love the work basically. And do you, so you talk about the incremental stroke on stroke improvement. Do you feel that as a Cox, you develop outing per outing, you develop as a Cox or is your job to support the rowers to develop that? Because you, I guess you have a coach on the bank who support, mm-hmm. who's kind of techniquing, finessing the technique of the rowers. Yeah, um, I definitely, I'd say kind of, I, I'm, you know, seeing myself probably not making those incremental changes as much on a on a daily basis, but over kind of um, a season or, or a particular block, we might have a particular technical focus we're working on. And and so for me, it's it's trying to understand how to get the best out of the rowers, you know, in order to make that technical change. So a lot of it's to do with, for me at this point, like boat feel, language that I'm using, can I articulate something in a certain way? Um, how is the boat responding to the things that I'm saying? So I'm doing quite a lot of, well, but essentially my job actually outside of racing is pretty much coaching just from inside the boat. Um, and it's trying to work with the coach and work with athletes because, um, you know, the athletes are changing a lot as well. It's not always the same people trying to sort of progress myself whilst also, you know, working with them, essentially. Do you, do you ever do you ever wish you were there pulling the pulling the blades and putting, the you know, the physical work in or, or do you sit there and they actually no. love um I I sometimes I really think I should answer that question yes um um, no not really um it's absolutely savage um I do train with them so I do all my land sessions I do uh off the water so I do all the um when they're erging I normally bike um and I do all the weight sessions and stuff with them so I do sort of um I do hurt myself with them um but when it comes to rowing um you know play to your strengths I know that I'm far better place telling them how to grow better than doing it myself <laughs> and when, when you train with them is that because as a cox you have to be I think you have to be a certain weight is that about weight management or is it about being part of the team and showing solidarity and you know suffering with them um definitely I, I'd say more the latter sort of the solidarity training together um I think you know fundamentally a cox is you're asking them to put themselves um you know into the biggest kind of black hole that you could possibly ever put them to and then and then you ask for a little bit more and a bit of a technical change or something you know within six seven minutes of of a race um and fundamentally they need to trust you and they need to you know basically want to do what you say a lot further beyond than you're the cox and I'm the rower that relationship once we get to kind of you know the the sharp end of racing needs to be far more 
complicated and deep really and so I think that by building those relationships by training with them by showing that you're working hard for something as well that really helps um, and I definitely I mean I used to find the weight really easy and um, as I've kind of gone through my 20s and, um, and stuff I, it's definitely not as easy to keep the weight so it's actually quite useful for me just to keep training um, to to make sure that I keep making weight well and I also want to be strong because I have to have a good core I have to have a good trunk and um, you know muscle weighs more than fat so it's actually you know you've actually almost weirdly got to work harder to be on weight if you want to be strong and and coxing is your job so you do, how, how long have you been doing it full-time so um, I've been full-time properly since 2018 um, I was basically doing it full-time pretty much since 2015 but I worked full-time at the same time um I worked flexibly sort of before it was cool (laughs) before (laughs) lockdown um and I used to yeah I used to work I I you know when you look back and you're like I don't know how I did it um I rode for free you know and I was obviously just doing it as my hobby but six days a week two to three sessions a day and then I was doing a sort of um 38 hour um, flexible job as well around that so I just I just worked and rode all the time um, and then we're really lucky um, in the UK to be funded by National Lottery so even if you get into the GB rowing team you still need to start putting performances on the board at major championships to start sort of earning money either you know even just pocket money all the way up to a salary um, so I, when I first won the world championships in 2018, I went from sort of peanuts to, I can live on this. Um, and that's when I thought, you know, what, I'm just going to give, give rowing my all. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been pretty, pretty nice since. And do you love it just as much when it's your job? Cause I, I, I actually struggled when I was a full-time athlete for two and a half years and I loved it. And on paper, it sounds, you know, it sounds amazing, but it's a lot harder than people realize. And I, for me, I, I actually enjoyed it more I think when I was working part-time and had a bit of balance do you do you love it as much when it's your job or more maybe or less Um, it's a good question so I actually um I think you have to have something else going on um in your life I think it can't just be the only thing so whether it's a job or you volunteer or you have another hobby because I think that's one of the hard things when you transition like you say to being a full-time athlete that was your hobby because people go sports journalists or something Mm. goes what do you do outside of rowing you're like uh, well no rowing is <laughs> that, no, that was my hobby like now it's my job um so actually weirdly it was in lockdown um I basically decided to get a job as my hobby um okay, interesting. And because I was like I need so basically obviously we had Tokyo and it was postponed um and we all of a sudden were training from home and we had this all this time spreading out in front of us and nothing to fill our days and and everything and I thought you know what I need I need something else now. I need I need something to mentally kind of challenge me when rowing is just rowing and it's literally erging in my kitchen um, and I'm not getting that social interaction. So, yeah, so I picked up working for an education charity and I worked for them sort of 10 hours flexibly a week. Um, and almost that's become my hobby now. <laughs> um, that's but that's like, really you, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think you need I think you need something else. And I think that's, um, you know, whether you're whether it's you know your job is your be all and end all that's why people need hobbies I think you need I think gives you perspective yeah but there's very few people who turn their hobby into a job and I guess professional sports people artists musicians etc um in lockdown then were you coxing your team to do ergos 
Um, so I, I did a lot of them with them. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was a weird time. I mean, I, it was a weird time for everyone, wasn't it? But it was, I look back and I think, goodness, that was mental. Um, we would basically, um, do you know we had a program set it was a bit flexible obviously normally our programs are very specific and timed um but we had we had a program we needed to be doing a minimum of two sessions a day um but there was lots of flex around what tier you were in for example could you go out on a bike ride rather than being stuck indoors what access to weights did you have could you go swimming at this point you know all these sorts of things but yeah we did pretty much i'd say sort of 70 80 percent of training sessions together on zoom um on mute with each other like playing our own music but it's literally just the solidarity of looking up and there's someone else there because rowing is um you know there's we see the exciting things on the telly you know rate 30 people going really fast in a couple of minutes but ultimately you know it's a big it's aerobic capacity sport so a lot of the training sessions in a week are like 80 minutes on a bike 80 minutes on an ergo and and that that can be a bit mind-numbing so sort of having other people with you was really helpful so I did a little bit of coxing but most of my coxing was almost that solidarity piece was doing it doing it with them yeah yeah I feel like I could have a whole whole episode talking to you about about (laughs) coxing and rowing but this is the move against cancer podcast (laughs) um so you were diagnosed with breast cancer um earlier this year um and I think now you're a long way through some chemotherapy before some surgery. Um, tell us if, if you're happy to, um, how you were diagnosed and, and kind of what's happened since then, because it's been quite a story and you've been everywhere, all over the BBC, all the national newspapers worldwide, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been crazy, really. Um, so, yeah, so we'll sort of go back. You know, I finished Tokyo, um, had a great experience I wanted to didn't want to retire I wanted to carry on and race to Paris and so I had a bit of time off with a lot of my teammates until Christmas and sort of hit January and was like okay you know new season it's actually a really short um, cycle to get to Paris this year because the game's being postponed Mm -hmm. and I had some time off so we're like two and a half years so soon Um, and I was on training camp in May in Italy um uh when I found a lump um on my breast um and I I've always been really conscious about checking my breast um there's paternal history of breast cancer in my family with women in their 30s as well um they'd never we'd had the kind of the gene testing but that you know it never it never come back with anything but obviously it's, it's just something I was really aware of and I'd had lumps checked before um so I was you know you're like oh no but also I'd had them checked before and I knew I knew it was the right thing to do. Um, I got in touch with my team doctor because essentially the the conflict that I had was I had 10 days between coming home from training camp and then flying out to um, Serbia to compete um, in a World Cup. And um, also for me, the World Cup, the World Cup is sort of like a World Series in rowing. It's not the World Cup like football, um, yeah. but I'd never competed in one before um, because there's normally only one a year that we go to and various reasons covid injury we'd never made it and it was sort of the last on my on my like international bucket list I really wanted to do so I was like well I'm definitely gonna go do that um and yeah I ended up um getting a referral through my team doctor and I went um and had it checked I had uh, biopsies done um you know they said that there's uh, they were sort of they graded it a three out of five on this this ultrasound which basically was uh, we think it's probably benign but there looks like there might be something you know obviously we'll get it checked um 
and then we we're arranging the follow-up appointment and the follow-up appointment was due to be the day that I flew to Serbia and the oncologist very gently but firmly said well I think it's not really a phone call appointment is it like because <laughs> we don't know which way it's going to go so you do need to be here so um I ended up having kind of a conversation with my teammates and said look I need to have this appointment you know are you happy for me to come out a day late and they were all yes that the team supported me and um and obviously that ended up being the day I got diagnosed um and for me it's a really weird one because I've only sort of reflected on this after the fact sort of accidentally having to think about what if it's bad news what would I want to do all of these I think I ended up sort of pre-processing quite a lot of that subconsciously because I thought you know what if it is bad news will I still want to go and compete yes Mm. yes I will um I didn't I was not conscious I was doing that at all but you know I think the the fact that I was able to go and and I, I basically got the diagnosis and had my parents come over my husband's parents come over and sort of gave them all the information and then I was like okay I'm gonna go to Serbia now so see you in a few days and um I mean I actually felt very bad for my husband because I think it was quite hard for him but for me I was like I'm gonna go and do do what I love and I don't know when I'm gonna be able to do this next um so so you've done do you think in that in that time you'd you'd kind of allowed yourself to process what if it is cancer or do you think the voice inside you was actually saying it's going to be fine but uh, you know almost assuming that it was going to be fine I don't know um it's hard to know being on the other side of it knowing that it was cancer if that makes sense Mm. um I think I probably did think it would be fine but there was there was a small really really small bit of me that I wasn't really like tapping into which because I said I had lumps checked before I had three biopsies done on this one area and there was a tiny bit of me which went it's a bit thorough (laughs) (laughs) Um, and um, uh, I'd only had like one singular biopsy done and then one single biopsy done two different lumps I'd had checked before and so I don't know yeah maybe I, 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 I think that either way I think almost having a plan for after that meeting whatever the result of that meeting was probably I mean for people who know me they're like unsurprising because I am like the world's biggest planner ahead like that's you know lots of people find the athlete lifestyle really restrictive I'm like woohoo tell me exactly where I'm gonna be in two months time (laughs) at 2pm so yeah so I, I don't know um but it was yeah it was amazing and like I just I just went out and raced and very few people knew what had happened um maybe about 10 12 people kind of my teammates and staff but British rowing cohorts there was probably about 80 athletes and 30 staff and and it just actually allowed me to go and um be normal and I think that's to be honest like that's what I would say you know a lot of people I've chatted to who've particularly post-diagnosis in that initial bit you know you feel like the rug's being pulled out underneath you and it's a bit of control um because you've all of a sudden being told to turn up here have this test you know give me your blood um and actually here was something I could I could manage which was which was amazing but you had just been told you had cancer and yet you were going out and and one of your main goals presumably was to support your team to you know psychologically support your team Mm -hmm. how did you compartmentalize this there must surely there must have been shit I've got cancer come on we're gonna win this race how did you you juggle that um so could you just put it in a box and just switch off um I definitely I didn't so I basically I I think 
there was a few things that helped me kind of compartmentalize so firstly I was aware like you said like I needed to look after my team like and I think you know being part of a team sport you know that it's not just you it's you you know you are you're like a spider in the middle of a web and you have kind of an impact on all these other people and I think particularly as a cox like my um approach to things the way I communicate with other people uh, you know I am the voice of the boat everything I do has has a knock-on effect and so I knew that I needed to manage that situation really well um so once I found out um you know I was chat to parents and stuff I, I basically spoke to my team doctor my chief coach and my crew coach to like make sure that horse's mouth they knew everything that was going on and then I said like I want to tell the athletes what's going on but I need to give them some space because I'm literally arriving tomorrow and they know I have this appointment today so I basically sort of crafted this message on WhatsApp which basically was like look this is what I know um you know that I'm I've caught this early, like I've got cancer but I've, I've caught it early um you know I'll be going into treatment don't really know what that looks like you know no one's obviously I've got cancer but no one's going you know this is stage four we're talking you know big heavy words about prognosis and things like that I sort of kept that quite light and, and and stuff and then I said this is what I need from you um and then I basically said you know I'm coming out and this is why I'm coming out and this is um this is what I want to do like I don't you don't I don't want big hugs I don't want people to ask me if I'm okay like we're coming out to do a job and I want to come and do this because I want to come and do this with you guys because I don't know when I'm going to be able to do it next and I want to enjoy it and you know and basically if you've got any questions like just call me but like you can ask me anything I love um, this you're yeah. laying out expectations from what you need from your 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 team and whoever else you talk because so often people say that they don't know how to support someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer or mm -hmm. any other you know tough life situation and you're saying this is what I need from you and I don't need pity yeah well because I knew so this is this compartmentalization because I am I am a little bit you know I have I can be emotional and so I knew that if someone like I got off you know got off the plane or got off whatever and then someone gave me a big hug I probably burst into tears like yeah. so I was like just but that's not helpful for you that's not helpful for me like we don't need that um and and I think so like you say like sort of setting out what what you needed from them and then they're like I think they were they were like okay we can do this I can do that I can fulfill that for you um and then what was really nice was um well Serbia is an odd it's an odd place to go and compete um and um uh, normally at the end of a competition you know you might go out for a drink with your family or whatever but we most of us didn't have people kind of out watching us um just because it's a bit of a hard one to get to and so actually it was just the team um and you might have a beer in the hotel play some cards or something before you get the flight home the next day and you know almost we'd got through the racing you know everyone had a really good competition and then we just sat in the evening and had a beer in the hotel and everyone was like you're right <laughs> and I was like yeah I am I'm all right I am all right and then we almost had that conversation you know like 72 hours later um and I was in a place that I could talk about it and and you know to be honest I didn't know any more than I did when I messaged them on whatsapp but it was it was actually really good I think it was really healthy because we we both knew where well, we all knew where each other stood. 
So I, I guess because at that point you you mentioned you're a planner, but at that point there was new pl- no plan. You knew you had yeah. cancer. Did you, I guess you didn't even know it hadn't spread anywhere by that point? No, I hadn't got a clue. Yeah. So so you how did you deal with that? Not was that was that? Yeah, I don't know how how as yeah. a planner because I suspect we if you're treated in the NHS it probably took several weeks to get a plan. How did you yeah. deal with that time? Yeah, it was actually I'd say that's probably like the worst the worst time for me was was that phase. So I had a kind of a weird um uh transition as well. So basically I I got diagnosed through um Bupa because um the athletes have um kind of healthcare through that. Yeah. But it's like the athlete medical service. Um so I got diagnosed, but I was pretty sure that I'd read somewhere because um, I am, you know, one of those who reads those T's and C's. I was pretty sure I read that, you know, cancer diagnosis and like sort of treatment wasn't covered on the athlete medical service and things like that. Because ultimately, the athlete medical service exists from UK Sport, you know, to rehab an injury and things like that. So it's, it seems harsh, but I also understand because I actually do understand how much. Uh, treatment for cancer does cost so I was pretty aware that I would be basically post-diagnosis be transitioning onto NHS into that that sort of sphere um and then I went from a real like I trust the doctors I just need to wait for an appointment I just need to wait I just need to wait why are they not calling me why are they not calling me? <laughs> oh my goodness and it was so hard and it was really really tricky and then it was just really poor timing as well because it was when we had that double Maybank holiday that came out of nowhere. Oh God, yeah. So no one was like, no one was answering the phones and I didn't know because I was sort of transitioning from Boob to NHS. And and one of the best things I did was, um, uh, so I was due to be treated at the Royal Barks um, and then I basically was chatting to my chief coach's wife um, had had breast cancer about eight years ago. And she, you know, as lots of people do, they reach out and they say, you know, would you like to have a chat? And I, I think that's sometimes that's really hard because you just you don't want to because yeah. you're like I don't I don't want to. But there are some people you know who um, I would say you know almost pick and choose your your um, confidants and who you want to chat yeah. to. And, and Helene for me has been incredible. And I was like, yeah, do you know that'd be really great um, if we can have a chat. And she said, look, she was going to be treated at the Royal Barks, but through a weird small world rowing connection, ended up being treated at the Royal Surrey, which is just a little bit further away in Guildford and she said like look you can advocate for where you want your treatment to be you can choose that you know this is a thing but also have you heard of this um it's called the uh, TYAC which is the teenage young adult cancer unit yeah um because in Guildford goes up to the age of 30 um which is very unusual because normally it's 24 and 25 you can't get there yeah and I think it it might even be one of the only ones in the country and she was like you should get in touch with these guys because they're incredible I had incredible treatment at the Royal Surrey I'm sure the Royal Barks would be great but you are in limbo at the moment and almost here there might be this opportunity here um to to go to TYAC and so I yeah I got in touch with them and they were like yeah come on down and it was (laughs) incredible like that's completely my whole cancer experience has been so different because I've been in this unit with young adults being you know treated by the same nurses um in this sort of mini community that I found myself in and um yeah it's that that's been huge but I'd say yeah that that it was almost a month really without a plan I felt like sort of shit without a rudder it was it was quite stressful yeah I often reflect on that with with my patients and I I think I've come to the conclusion that 
once you have a plan, even no matter what how bad the plan is, at least you can get your head around it. But you can't get your head around ifs and what's and maybes and it's so easy to uh, to imagine the worst and um yeah it's something I really I really struggle with as an oncologist because the NHS is so slow and it's so often that you're saying I'm really sorry but we we still haven't got your scan we can't make the plan until we have got the scan and yeah I imagine it it must be really challenging but perhaps even more so for people like you who who are planners yeah who are pain So eventually you got your plan and your plan mm-hmm. was chemotherapy yeah, and then surgery, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you wanted, I mean, your job uh, and you had some big races coming up. So I, I'm really, you know, I think you must have an amazing medical team who've supported you to keep living. And I, it's something I, I really believe in really strongly. So how, how have you managed to, or did you manage to juggle the two and combine them to to go and win the European Championships in the middle of yeah. Um, I think like there's a bit of bullheadedness probably um, and being really, really stubborn. And I thought, you know, um, I basically got my plan and I was like, okay, this is this is roughly where, where it's going to be and what it's going to look like. Um, you know, there was definitely some naivety in there for me as well about, you know, blood's always being great. And like, you definitely <laughs> have chemo on that set day. Obviously, now I realise that's that's a little Did you naive. put all the dates in your diary and then have to cross them out? <laughs> and then you gotta like cross them out because you're like chemo number one, and then you're like, oh, chemo number five. Like it's it's yeah, it's it's um yeah, it doesn't quite play um play ball. Um, but I basically um set out with the intention that you know I had the 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 kind of main dream really was to try and race at the European Championships this year, um, which was in August. So I would be two chemos in. Um, so I, I was well aware that this was, you know, I might've had my first round, um, of, um, I had EC at first and I might've had my first round and then been floored and gone, okay, that was, that was nice to think about that. But, um, you know, thankfully I, I responded, you know, relatively well. I, um, I had the fatigue, um, um, but also I think, you know, I didn't have the big sickness, um, and nausea. And I think, um, for me, you know, particularly like uh, I'm well aware of obviously being a weight athlete and fueling and how important that is. If I wasn't able to hydrate properly and eat enough, um, it just makes you feel rough, doesn't it? Like, yeah. you know, even if regardless if you're having good chemotherapy, if you just you've got a stomach bug, it takes you longer to get over than a cold because, you know, you're not eating enough, your body's not recovering and you're not giving it what it needs. And so I really, really consciously in those first few chemos was like, I'm going to be like the model chemotherapy <laughs> patient. I'm going to drink liters of water and be uber hydrated and like eat loads before treatment to the point that I almost felt sick before having treatment <laughs> because I was like, I need to eat because what if I can't eat afterwards? Um, um, my nurses will laugh at me because I'll literally arrive in the hospital and I've got like this little like pots of porridge and I'm just like eating a porridge. Like they're like more porridge. <laughs> I'm like, it's good for you. <laughs> um, and just trying to really like, you know, look after myself. And then, and then fundamentally it was a combination of, you know, I had unbelievable support from my team um, that again, like, you know, there was an element in me that really didn't want to be selfish about, about this because I wanted to go and race, but ultimately, you know, I was asking a lot from my teammates, you know, to just emotionally like, take that on with them um and to race you know with me and for me and 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 to 
make those compromises I'm like I've got a scan I can't come in can we move the session to this way and, and stuff and like my team in terms of you know the British rowing team as well just I mean I don't want to imagine the phone call they had to make to the insurance company being like <laughs> so <laughs> um, I got my own travel insurance as well as like you know belt and braces but even even those sorts of things you know had to have these conversations um but yeah to kind of it, it was a real team effort and then my oncologist was talking to my team doctor and I think one of the reasons obviously they were particularly supportive of, of, of me going was um you know I had a team doctor literally traveling with me as well um and so you know if there was anything going wrong I was also going to Germany which have excellent healthcare if I was trying to push to go and compete in Serbia again I think maybe mid chemo I'm not sure like the the healthcare there would have been quite um up to scratch if I you know had sepsis or something um so there was a lot of a lot of collaboration and, and just a lot of faith to be honest of, of people really backing me and I think that's what got me really emotional um at the Euros because I was like flip like so many people have done this to help me get here and it, it meant so much to me and and so for me to be able to be open and share it was was amazing because I just wanted to sort of thank everybody who'd help me get there and and that video of you at the finish kind of went viral and that <laughs> it, was, it was if anyone we'll put it in in a link but it's it's a really lovely interview um did you ever doubt your ability to do your job as a cox because i i imagine this you have to have your brain it's almost i guess your brain is the most important part but actually there's so much going on how did yeah did you doubt that you could do your job or did you get like fully confident that you could be the cox you always are um I'd say I probably actually had I had more doubt actually in in um uh Serbia than I did in in at the Euros um because it was so fresh in Serbia and I was literally like oh my goodness like I was because it was those what ifs and I didn't know and like you know when you you almost have to like consciously bat things out of your head. Yeah. Like I felt like I was sort of doing that in Serbia. And I remember on the warm up, um, warm up circulations, it's very boring, but as quite an important part of my job, like every lake has a different circulation. You've got boats going in different directions and stuff, and you need to get the warm up done before the race. And I remember like just completely missing something out of the warm up and literally having to almost be like proverbially suck myself around the face, being like, Erin, you wanted to be here, you need to do your job. Like you need to stop thinking about whether that MRI is going to happen in two weeks time yeah. um so almost by the time we got to Euros um I I knew I'd be able to do my job I think what I was I was worried about the emotion overcoming me um too soon essentially um and if I listen to my coxing recording like I'm I'm wobbly in the last 200 <laughs> meters but, but by then the race was done and dusted so I think that's probably why I was I wonder if we, you know if we've been pushed all the way to the line I might have been maybe a little bit more um solid but as soon as we finished the line I just sort of huge probably the most outpouring of emotion I'd sort of had since my diagnosis really because it felt it felt really momentous but it also felt um it was for me really sad because um it was accepting that I wasn't going to go to the world and this was like that chapter just temporarily I was just having to put like put put you know fold the page over and go now you really do have to just focus on on yeah. and getting better and um 
you know I talk about it in the interview but a friend of mine I stole I stole her line because she was consoling me about it but just saying like what a privilege it is to have something you love so much that it it, it hurts so much to stop it um you know and, and I think you know that that really rang with me because I was like yeah do you know what actually I'm really lucky that I have this and this is something that I want to come back to and that can be a I'll turn that into motivation rather than something that I'll be really sad about. What was it? Um, what was it like watching the World Championships? Because I, I, I saw you did a, a really lovely Instagram post about your friend, but also mm-hmm. I guess your competitor who was coxing the boat. Yeah, um, and it couldn't have been a more gracious post. But what what emotions did you have watching it? Yeah, so Morgan and I have known each other for years and years. So as you can imagine, sort of. I mean, rowing's quite a small insular world anyway. And then coxing is even more niche. And then, you know, you start to get to sort of like, you know, the pointy end and you're all sort of, you're all the same age. You've all been on the same circuit for a while. Um, so I've known Morgan for years and years. Um, and she's been knocking on the door for GB for, I mean, she was very close to getting selected for Rio, um, but she was always struggling with the weight management. And then um, partway through last year's, um, four-year cycle they changed the weight so she was sort of you know back in the game but never quite made it into the women's eight um and then this year got kind of was in the women's squad and then they decided not to send an eight to the world chat you know it was literally like I don't know you know someone was writing the book and kept sort of pushing Same it to the side <laughs> yeah and she was and she's she's a brilliant cox and um and um it, it these things never seem to work out in sport um you know and and I when I knew I couldn't go to the world I was like they're not sending a women's eight wouldn't it be incredible if Morgan could go like um because you know obviously from my perspective I don't want someone who wants to take my seat to take my seat either she wants to be in the women's eight this is potentially a win-win here because she's she's a good mate and this is opportunity for her to go race the world championships um but also you know not be sort of sitting in my grave sort of waiting to kind of take yeah, my seat yeah. because um she could go and have an incredible experience. I could sort of almost let it go without feeling too threatened by the future um, and and sort of make that happen. So it was, it was, it worked out really well and this, these things never happen. So, you know, we've got to like thank our lucky stars. But um, it was really hard to watch um, because you just, you know, like I know the race plan in and out. I knew where they were going to move. I knew what they were going to do. and And it was, it was really hard not being a part of it. And they, they did like, the team were amazing and kept me really involved. Like we, we messaged all the time and like video calls and all of that. But I was also really conscious again, not to just try not to be selfish about it because actually yeah. this is their, this is their world championships. Like I'm not there, but they are. And I don't want to be like, you know, pulling on that emotion. So I, I tried to really walk the line between actually just being like, just go and enjoy it and have an incredible time. And like, I'm really excited to see when you get back and it will be great, but also, you know, go and enjoy it. Um, and it was, yeah, it was exhausting. Like the few days after the worlds, I was absolutely knackered like Monday, Tuesday. I think just the emotional like energy and outpouring was, was, yeah, was really, really big. Um, but you know, the new season started yesterday. So we're sort of with, you know, it all starts again, basically. And then everyone, the slate wipes clean and, and, yeah, you've got I can to imagine. Yeah, I can imagine it was really hard. I was talking to um, so the, the Ironman World Championships a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I always feel actually the longer I step away, the 
the more grateful I am that I was ever part of that world. And it's kind of almost disbelief. But there is always this, I don't know, just weird feeling of I want to be there. I'm not there. I'm obsessed with it. I don't want to be obsessed with it. Yeah. And, and like, it, I find it, and I think it's not uncommon, quite emotionally challenging that week. Yeah. Um, it's and I like grief, isn't it? Like, it's like what you could have had, did have, and the emotions you had with it. And yeah, I, I completely get it. Well, particularly for you, because because you would have you would have been there had you not been diagnosed with cancer, and and there's nothing that you could do about that. Yeah. Do you ever? I mean, when you look at your Instagram and and you know interviews or, or whatever, you're you're always you seem to have this amazing skill of finding the positive or turning a challenge into an opportunity, or superficially at least doing that. Is that something that comes naturally to you, or is it something that you you know, you're feeling shit and you think, right, I need to turn this around. Um, I'd say it's, it's something that's more natural um, in that I um, I don't, I think for me, if I sort of get into like self, you know, like too uh, into the, you know, when you're getting too, like my husband would say like, oh, I'm just feeling a bit low today or something like that. Like, I'm like, oh no, I don't want to sit there. I'm, I don't want to sit in this, this and I'll, I'll do something to, change it I'm quite a proactive um person that I've always had a lot of I've always had a lot of capacity and I've always probably overfilled my capacity as he'll probably tell me <laughs> as well when he's like please stop booking things in um and um and so it was really interesting because like I I basically I don't know whether it was also you know partly because of rowing and, and you know forcing decisions on me about what do I want to do and, and stuff um and also maybe the fact that I knew that my treatment, my active treatment would probably end towards the end of a year. And so it was a really weird scenario because I almost saw my, you know, I found myself at the end of May, the start of June, almost looking at the the rest of my year and going, well, this is either going to be a good year or a bad year. And I feel like I have some autonomy in how this year is going to pan out or how I'll look back on this year. Um, and I could look back on it and think, that was miserable or I can look back on it and think that was really hard but there were some really good bits in it um and you know trying to prioritize the good bits and basically drop the things I don't like doing and so like even just from a I don't know like I'm not very good at being like kind to myself or patient with myself and <laughs> I've had to really hard so like for example I was like right it's not long after I got nose so um I was like right I'm getting cleaner I'm going to get a cleaner to come Best every week. I ever made. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Why didn't I do it before? <laughs> um, um, and like, we're like, my husband and I are part of a local church here and they were like, we would love to help like on the day of your chemo and the day after someone from church will cook you dinner. And um, old me would have been like, oh no, I don't need help. It's fine. And then I was like, okay, that's, yeah, that'd be really nice. And do you know what? Not having to think about food for two days a week is amazing like and and sort of going okay like I'll, I'll let help in and I'll let that and then you know that would give me that capacity then to do nice things and and try I and imagine that's really hard when your role is supporting others as a cox to then accept yeah. that actually you need support you need to accept the support that they're trying to offer you or other people 
yeah it's it's really hard um I'm not gonna lie <laughs> I, and I think I think almost I mean if you've listened to like what I've said also the support that I've accepted is very structured <laughs> um, but I think that's probably like the way that I can let it in like if someone like dropped in on me and said can I come clean your house I'd be like oh no but you know having something pre-planned and like you know so then that buys me that time later is, is something that I probably value do you have a spreadsheet then, right? You're going to bring me dinner this day and you're there next day. And then the rest of the time, you can all bag off and let me do my own thing. <laughs> well, there's, there's actually, this is for anyone who's listening, you know, who's wondering how to help people who've recently been diagnosed. It's a really good thing. It's called Meal Train. Um, it's free. It's a very budget looking website. But basically, it can be set up by you or by a friend. You can put your address in it and you can put dates down and then you can just share a link and people can go and sign up for a day. And that then they also. Amazing. And they say what they're going to bring, so you don't have seventeen lasagnas. Um, ah, we will so, definitely, um, we'll definitely link to that. I've never heard of anything yeah. like that. Yeah, it's really basic, but it, it literally serves a purpose. And then the day before you're either due to deliver a meal to someone or receive a meal, it says, you know, Lucy's going to drop you a meal tomorrow, and she's bringing cottage pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. I, I think that's yeah, that's great. It's always the simple things that are good. Yeah. Um, so, Erin, you. I mean, before rowing, sorry, before before your diagnosis, mm-hmm. I, I imagine you were moderately well known in the rowing world, but then this has kind of catapulted you into the public eye a little bit. But I I, I get the feeling that you've chosen to 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 live your journey in the public eye and kind of perpetuate that interest. Why why are you doing this? And and. Are there any points where you think, oh, my God, this is really hard. I wish I could just do it on my own. Yeah, um, I decided to do it publicly because basically the only reason that I checked my chest was um, because I'd seen other people talk about it and do it on social media. Um, Like specifically like Copperfield um, and um, Chris Hallinger. Um, I had met her... um, actually weirdly I told her about this recently but I weirdly I knew about Copperfield and then I saw her out and about and I was one of those people who went up and was like hi I just think what you've done is amazing I really like your charity oh wow before Um, I was diagnosed (laughs) yeah before I was diagnosed um and I thought she was brilliant and then last year after Tokyo we were invited to the same um awards dinner and I went up to her again pre-diagnosis and was like hello I I went to see you you know obviously she didn't remember me but I was like I just think you're great. And and I was trying to think, how can we get athletes promoting um, people checking their chest and stuff like that? Because, you know, it's another... Well, Copperfield is a charity, isn't it? Just for people yes. that don't know. Oh, yes. Yeah. So Copperfield is a charity. It's it's, it's purely a, it's a breast, um, breast cancer awareness charity. So it's just purely about educating on the signs and symptoms of breast cancer and knowing what your normal is and basically encouraging people to go and get checked. Um, so Chris... Um, was 23 I think when she was diagnosed Mm. with stage four breast cancer and she'd been turned away a number of times by her GP and she was thinking you know we need to we need to talk more about it um yeah and and so you know I've met Chris a few times and things like that and I thought gosh like this this woman saved my life um and she doesn't even know and obviously she's saved a lot more lives because she started this charity but I was just like you know people just don't think it would happen to them um, and and I was thinking, why don't people go get checked? Um, and I think it's because they either, you know, they, they don't, they, they haven't found a lump in the first place, or let's say they have, or they found something. Um, they are scared of what the next bit is, 
because they've scared they're scared of you go okay this is a cancer diagnosis and then if I'm honest like who really knows unless you've really directly been associated with someone like a sister or a partner what actually having cancer daily weekly looks like mm-hmm. and and going through the whole process um you know and I've had close family members who've had cancer and I couldn't tell you what their lived experience is um and I thought you know what if I can talk about this and maybe destigmatize and make it slightly less scary then it might encourage more people to go and get checked and be breast aware because you know having chemotherapy is horrible I'm not not going <laughs> to sugarcoat it but it it is a bit mundane as well yeah like a cancer diagnosis is is really quite um monotonous <laughs> it's bloods it's driving to a hospital it's having a pour cup of tea like it's like a job that you really don't want to do yeah because it takes up it does take up your your life doesn't it yeah too much time and and even like um you know uh, I went through fertility preservation I I'm in a you know an induced menopause and so like yesterday I it was menopause awareness day which normally as a 30 year old would go straight over my head and I was like no I'm gonna just post about actually what that is like for me because at the moment you know I'm, I'm on an artificially induced menopause and the night sweats are horrific so like I'm just going to tell people about it and um you know and, and so I thought yeah like for me it's quite cathartic to articulate what I'm feeling and, and stuff and also it's quite um you know I, I feel like I'm doing something good and something good's coming out of it so that's you know that's a bit of a silver lining I get. I guess you can see it both ways. Like that, I presume you get, you know, lots of lovely messages and positive thoughts and things from people you don't know that you've never heard of, which can probably be um, be really motivating. And and you get that feedback that you're making a difference. But there must be times where you think, God, I just I don't want Joe blogs off so and so to be seeing what I do. You ever do you ever feel like that or not? Yeah, I think the fi- the times I find it really hard with um, is when like it's awful but like I've posted let's say yesterday I posted about you know um, menopause um and then but I haven't actually replied to like seven of my mates on whatsapp <laughs> um and then and then they're like I can see you're online and I'm like oh sorry <laughs> um that's like sort of where it's a bit tricky um but yeah I think um I, to be honest like I think I've never really been like I wish I was just doing this on my own because I'm I'm probably like a I'm a unsurprisingly an extrovert and I quite I like engaging with other people that was something I found particularly like hard in lockdown was just being on my own or just you know having not having a big kind of group of people to chat to um but I think um I think one of the harder things about being more public about it and I've had to like manage and be tactful is is um is unsolicited advice and yeah um and and I don't think this is just me. I think this is anyone who's got diagnosed from what I've chatted to. People love to share a bad news story, which is really, really weird. And I think uh, I've I've not been pregnant, but a lot of my friends have recently had babies. And I think it's a similar thing. You know, people yeah. who see a pregnant woman, they're like, my friend had a 72-hour labor. And you're like, <laughs> thanks. Um, <laughs> and you get that a bit. When I was first on EC and people are like, it's called the Red Devil, did you know? And I'm like, 
well no but now I'm, I don't think that has positive connotations like um and so you just have to yeah I had to kind of manage manage that a little bit but it's sort of settled down a little bit now so many people that so many guests on this have said exactly that um it's a very weird part of the human human spirit isn't it Mm. Um, you have you are I mean you you're using this platform that you've you've got now to do amazing stuff so you um you did a great article in the Daily Mail about exercise um which was you know it's great for us to see that um but you're you've also got your changing room challenge so tell us tell, tell me what that is yeah so um so it's through partnership with Copperfield um so they have these um shower stickers that you can essentially put up in your shower they don't leave a mark um they're very good um and um I thought that you know encouraging people to check their chest is 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 just actually it shouldn't be oh I do it once a month and I've ticked the box but actually it's just something that you do all the time and you're aware of um and so I thought you know I found mine in the shower doing a routine check actually this could be a really great opportunity to see you know leverage the athlete community and the sports community and see how many shower stickers we can get up around in kind of clubs schools gyms around the UK um which has been it's been amazing so um we've had kind of well nearly 2,000 now I think kind of sign-ups for these um shower stickers um and I've been starting to get pictures of people putting them up in showers at home or sports clubs like uh a lot of my friends um you know through the olympic paralympic community i've been like come on guys let's let's see where we can get them so we've got them in like gb athletics we've got um like there's some down in wimbledon like it's it's you know we're just seeing how many we can get out because i just think it's yeah it's just trying to it's trying to get the message out there and getting people to to know what their normal is and so then if there's something that isn't normal they they can go and get it checked out so I um I was talking to Jacqueline Gold last uh, for the last episode, mm-hmm. so CMO of Ann Summers, and she said uh, before she was diagnosed, she had an alarm and she just set it once a month, and she's like, you know, first of the month, whatever day it was, mm-hmm. right? That's the day that I check my boobs. Um, it's yeah. really good advice. It's what I tell everyone in the testicular cancer clinic: just set an alarm one day a week. Uh, sorry, one day a month. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you've had really amazing healthcare. Um, you've got a team that have worked with you to make your you know your treatment as manageable as possible and and I guess work around your life to the to to some extent what are the this is really a question from my you know just for me to learn what are the best things and also the worst things that you've encountered from your healthcare professionals along the way the things that made the big difference positively and negatively um so I'd say sort of the biggest positives are um I feel like they they took the time really early on to sort of understand what I needed or like what, who I was as, as a person, as an individual. Um, that wasn't in a way that they were going to give me everything that I wanted. Cause obviously <laughs> I would have loved to have gone to the world champs as well. Um, but they, they really took the time to kind of say like, okay, this is important to you. And we understand that. And essentially we entered into some sort of, you know, negotiation of, you can go to the Euros, but you need to then focus on your treatment here. And I went, okay. Um, and I think, I think that was, that was really, really good. Um, I also think my, so my oncologist, my surgical oncologist, um, both of them are, have been really straight with me. Um, and I appreciate that's for me, that's exactly what I wanted and needed. Um, I went into my, um, this consultation because obviously I'd, kind of jumped from the Royal Barks over to Surrey as well and so 
we we were almost chasing our tail a little bit and I sort of came in and, and then she basically was like okay this is what it is this is what it is this is what it is and I was like okay yeah I can process that like I can I can take that on and so um I, I, that was really really good for me um I'd say kind of the the times that I I find most challenging is um when we're in you know I'm obviously in, in weekly treatment at the moment as well um is the uncertainty of of like last minute appointments and scans and do I need to physically be here there or anywhere and you know for example I had I had a phone call appointment today to confirm my bloods um but um I was just sort of going on the fact that it was a phone call because of the cycle that I'm in but I actually had the you know I had the phone call before the letter arrived today um, <laughs> which I know this is not really something that you can't particularly control but it's sort of that uncertainty and not quite knowing if you're doing the right thing um, and then when you need to kind of call and say should I be having a phone call do I need to be coming in and like it's that sort of um, uh, you know feeling like you're yeah you're not quite in the system or you're not quite kind of being looked after um, yeah, it's basically bureaucracy, I think, or which I don't know how much you can, you know, everyone can change. Do you know what I've started saying to, <clears throat> I try to say it to everybody um, that I see is, is generally, if you're expecting something to happen, and it's not happened, please, please chase it. Because mm. 99 times out of 100, it's our mistake, not your mistake, because there are so yeah. many issues with things. But, but so often, people are quite scared to to chase or they think oh I must have got it wrong I must have got confused but um sadly in the NHS it's if if you're expecting something to happen it's it's probably just the letters on its way or someone's forgot to pencil you in or the computer's not booked it or whatever isn't it one of one of the best things but I think that's this is partly because being on this young adult unit um is that I have a care team whatsApp group with um my nurses um and that's like incredible so even if that you know we can start that with with the young adult units and, and then roll it out from there because obviously I'm thinking about my granddad and I'm pretty sure he doesn't have whatsapp so it wouldn't work for everyone but for me um that's amazing and and so um there's like a duty phone that sort of one of them has but you know if they're in they've got these kind of work phones and essentially I can be uh, like for example when I I switched from um EC to um uh, this new type of chemo um i you know it's not glamorous but basically I had really really poor tummy and I was just like is this a side effect should I be doing anything and I just messaged being like is everything okay is this all right and rather than almost having to email or try and go Macmillan and stuff like that I was able to literally drop them a message and they were like yeah this is a side effect try this that's yeah. how you're getting on and then like message me the next day being like how are you doing um that's that's really nice but I appreciate that is a kind of young adult unit sort of probably perk oh I think well I think the the teenage young adult service is the service that the whole NHS should aspire to but because it's funded mainly by the charities I doubt I doubt Mm. the NHS will ever get there so you've got um you've got two three months more chemo left and then (laughs) at surgery and then hopefully that's that's it yes that's the hope um yeah everything's kind of moving really well I haven't had a scan recently but after three rounds of chemo We'd gone from 26 millimeters to 12 um which was great and so we're hopefully that trajectory is continued and i'll have a scan in a few weeks um so it's looking like you know i wouldn't need radiotherapy or second line chemo at the moment which is amazing so yeah hopefully um i'll be finishing at the start of december and then 
um, I've elected to have a double mastectomy reconstruction, um, which um, will happen. Well, at the moment, it looks like it's happening between Christmas and New Year. So hopefully that will happen in the first week of January instead. But um, either way, you know, we'll get we'll, we'll get the, the next bit rolling. And then, you know, as a planner, can you dare to plan for 2023 yet? Are you letting yourself plan? For... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah totally um yeah I mean in an ideal world so um like I was I was in training this morning um and so I'm just sort of dabbling in training as around my fatigue so I sort of went in um this morning and did a training session and sort of had had breakfast with everybody and then came back and had a nap um and then um uh I'm just sort of going to do that until Christmas and then into 2023 the hope is you know I have have this surgery and Obviously, it's going to be a pretty major surgery with a reasonable amount of recovery. But hopefully we've got the European Championships are in May 2023. Um, So I'm I'm sort of targeting another European Championships, hopefully next spring, um, which should give me, you know, enough time to let my body recover and get back in a boat and get back to, um, yeah, get back to doing what I love, I hope. And are you still, so you're still seeing the team and part, do you feel feeling part of the team? even though you're not you're not working yeah totally like um I'm really lucky like I live well, 10 minutes away from the training center so it's really easy to sort of drop in um and out and actually it's a really good time of the season so in rowing the winter season is is kind of a little bit fallow like everyone's training hard but they've sort of got their own things going on um a lot of the team who race at the world championships are all studying at the moment so they're sort of they're in and out of uni and into the training center and things like that so it's quite it's quite it's quite good for me actually at the moment because I can sort of dabble um but you know not tire myself out and because really it's, it's all about trying to get back for next next summer because we've got to qualify the boats for the games oh Erin you are I mean you're someone who just epitomizes optimism and finding the the good in tough times and yeah if 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 you're listening, don't follow Erin on Instagram or <clears throat> I think it's mainly Instagram you use. Um, yeah. you're so, you, you articulate so well the highs and the lows of what it actually means to be, to be going through cancer treatment. Um, thank you so much for, yeah, for coming on. Is there, is there anything you want to, to tell me or talk about that we haven't discussed? Because I could, I could stay on for another hour, but I don't, <laughs> I don't, um, think, I don't think you should be. <laughs> well, just, I, I just think like actually what, what you guys do and sort of, um, you know moving against cancer and obviously someone I was someone who was I weirdly I wasn't always super super fit even though I, I was in sport and I I probably started training with the team sort of really 2016-17 um and I I loved it like I, I I'm a little person but I love lifting weights like lifting weights is my favorite like far more than cardio or anything like that and um it's something that I've really enjoyed and I really wanted to to keep doing as much as I could throughout treatment and then I found out obviously how beneficial it actually is um and whether that is literally you know getting up and getting out of the house when you've had treatment and you just feel awful but you just need you know to get a bit of fresh air or or trying to do a little bit of exercise like I think you know I would just encourage whatever that looks like for you is is trying to keep kind of exercising and keep healthy get outside like whilst you're having your treatment because I think that's been something that you know even for me which is a part of my routine has been a struggle some days like I really don't want to and I've and it's taken my husband or whoever to be like come on even if we're literally slugging around the block and then we come back in and have a cup of tea like 
um yeah it's it, that's been really useful for me so definitely I'd I'd sort of encourage anyone who's listening to to keep doing that did your team uh talk to you about moving and exercise did they or, or was that something that you asked them um they they sort of took it for granted a little bit that I probably would and then when I talked about it then we sort of ended up talking about it in more detail um you know their main advice to me which I mean now obviously having gone through a number of cycles of chemo I wouldn't be doing this anyway but we're sort of basically let's let's not um we're not going to be doing maximal effort pieces on bikes or ergos or like max reps and things like that because ultimately you're asking your body to do a lot so let's not ask it to do more than it needs to um and that was quite yeah a good way to think about it for me like it's it's exercising to be you know help your body not to stress your body um so yeah but they they sort of pointed me in the direction of like some good resources and things like that yeah because you're you're probably the opposite end of the extreme to a lot of people so I think for a lot of people with cancer it's just giving them permission to stay active and saying you know what it's safe it's completely safe and it's probably going to make you feel better you're yeah. probably like me whereas that you know you're normal it's probably not it's probably not sensible to continue doing exactly what you are doing but I guess trying to take you know wean it back a little bit um is, yeah. is probably your challenge instead yeah yeah totally but um yeah it, it definitely you know it's definitely I think I think as well like you know it's just the mental health side of things as well it's it's just sort of um I think you know we're talking about trying to retain normality and things like that it's it's having a having a handle on things that you're used to and things that you you know and and then you can embrace that and be like actually this is a really good thing and I can I can keep doing this and it's yeah it's it's helping me mentally as well as physically and the changing room challenge if people want to get hold of stickers and things how do they do Mm -hmm. that um if you head to my instagram there's a link in my bio um and it's erin mwj um or you can head direct to copperfield as well and you can order it off their website and it's entirely free and you get five stickers in every pack awesome well we will um we'll put those in the show notes thank you so much erin wow isn't erin an amazing young woman I love being able to have these conversations and I really hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as me. If you did, why not share it with a friend or even better, give us a rating or a review on whichever platform you listened. We absolutely love hearing from you. So please do get in touch with comments, feedback and any suggestions for future guests. If you're a new listener and want to find out more about the work we do at Move Charity, go and check out our websites, movecharity.org and 5kyourway.org. In the meantime, have a great fortnight and we will be back very soon. Thanks for listening.